Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 27. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, I talk about some cutting-edge intel with Matt Bromley, and then I dive into OT security with Dave Cullen, field CTO for Otorio. Another week, another set of bad actions, exploits, and vulnerabilities. Thanks for being here to talk through the latest information coming out of the Intel channel on the Lima Charlie community Slack. It's great to have you, Matt. Chris, it's always great to be here. It's always great to see the great stuff coming out of that community Slack, and it's always great to sit and talk about it and find different ways to talk about how threat actors do what they do. So thanks, as always, for having me. Uh, The very obvious one we need to talk about is the emergency security updates issued by Apple to address two new zero days that can be exploited to attack iPhones, Macs, and iPads. Apparently, these have already been exploited in the wild, but very surgically, which points to nation-state or APT threat actors. The two security flaws are tracked as CVE 2023-28206 and CVE 2023-28205, both of which can be used to run arbitrary code. As you would expect, Apple has been pretty tight-lipped about the details. What can we tell our listeners about these except to go get the updates? Yeah, so first off, go get the updates. That's the most important one, absolutely. You know, I'll say whenever we see these types of exploits come along, especially for iPhones, Macs, and, and iPad devices and Apple devices and things like that, First off, I mean, Apple's got a a very, very tight-lipped approach to it, as you mentioned here. That's by design. Um, Their code base is, you know, very highly protected. Similarly, on the dark web and stuff, exploits for iOS devices are very, very expensive. There's a very huge bounty on them just because they're so, I guess, useful once you get them. And thus, we see kind of CVEs like this come about. Again, uh, you get the ability to execute arbitrary code. So it's something for, you know, listeners or something for viewers to be aware of. Also something that should prompt updates. I guess what I'm trying to say is the other side of this is I don't think, you know, this isn't a need to kind of get rid of your phone or I don't think this is a widespread attack that's going to be hitting everybody. Chris, as you mentioned, usually when we see kind of the surgical application of CVEs like this, it's usually some sort of exploit development group who found it and maybe sold it to the highest bidder or some sort of advanced group. As much as I hate to say it, a lot of times these types of exploits get used for, you know, groups that are kind of into government espionage, silencing opponents and political dissidents and all that kind of stuff are where you see a lot of these type of exploits in use because they are going after personal mobile devices usually. But in any event, If you're an iPhone or Apple user, don't even leave it up to chance. Go ahead and just patch, patch, patch all the time and get yourself up to that. But it is a very small fraction of a fraction of a fraction of percent of people who will likely maybe have ever actually been hit by this thing. But that being said, just patch. And if we get more information from Apple, Chris, we'll certainly talk about it and bring it up. I think it's important to note that, again, it is arbitrary code execution. Interestingly enough, one of them is as kernel privileges. I think, which is perhaps probably the scariest one of all, if I had to put a fear factor on them, just because it means that a lot of the protections that users might have put in place just aren't there at the moment, because you've got that kernel level privileges. But with that said, just patch. Um, I will say we saw some additional talk about this throughout the week and in some blog posts where people are kind of like, oh, there's, you know, lots of zero days coming from the Apple side of things. And there's different, uh, you know, different types of vulnerabilities popping up. I think any piece of software in in its history of life is going to end up experiencing vulnerabilities. I would just chalk it up as that. Again, I don't think Apple's lost sight of the goal. I don't think there's a lapse in security or anything. I think it's just vulnerabilities exist. They got found and they patch them as soon as they can. 
running arbitrary code on the Mac seems dangerous to me because, you know, it's a Unix derivative. Uh, and so you could get some kind of persistence. But from what I understand of the iOS architecture, all the applications are sandboxed. So is there a way for bad actors to get persistence in iOS devices through arbitrary code? Or is that sort of a null pointer? Yeah, so it depends on, um, I think when, when it comes to things like mobile devices and other types of you know, maybe tablets and things like that, which would probably fall under mobile devices, but let's just say non-standard PCs, right? Um, in my opinion, the concept of of persistence can sometimes be very, very volatile. So you're right, applications can go up and down inside of very protected sandboxes, number one. It is rare, but it is probably, you know, not unheard of that your device might be rebooted. Um, you're dealing with the battery at some point. So you've got to fight as a malware author, right? You, there's a certain assumptions you can't make anymore. You can't assume your malware can always beacon out 24-7. You know, my phone might be infected, but if the battery goes to 0%, it's, it's done, right? It's not beaconing at that moment, right? So persistence tends to be wrapped around things that users will commonly or often do. Or you'll, you'll tend to see kind of, you know, mobile devices, the, the persistence will be in the form of an app that itself gets kind of really, really high privileges. And this is something, this was years ago, but Google and Apple both started very, being very public about the types of permissions that an application was requesting. And part of the prompt for that was, so, you know, hey, I'm installing a Candy Crush, right? Why does Candy Crush need access to memory objects and my contact list and all that kind of stuff, you know? So it was meant to shine light on the things that applications might be requesting access to if it made someone um, uncomfortable with that access. So you tend to see kind of apps being installed and the apps will have some inherent persistence in them because the apps will stay open or they'll be open in the background. It's not like, you know, adding something to a startup list like you would on Windows or I can wrap a piece of malware and make sure it starts every single time. There, there's a lot more behind the scenes. And as you mentioned, there is the sandboxing side of things and other security measures that they put into place as well, right? If you think about, so for example, if you use certain, some of the kind of more encrypted or more secretive messaging apps, um, I'll use Signal as an example. I've, I've got Signal. I use Signal on my phone. And I've got Signal kind of double wrapped where I've got to use authentication to open my phone I then have to use additional authentication to open Signal, right? So the standard practices there are I'm going through multiple levels to protect the physical side of my device, but the virtual side, someone may tap into those messages outbound. And then in that case, it, it doesn't really matter. And I'm not saying that happens to Signal. It's not really the way it works. It's, it's more of depending at what layer the attack might exist at or the exploit of the vulnerability might exist at or the piece of malware or persistence mechanism might exist at is going to really determine what type of persistence they've got and, and kind of those other elements that we're used to assigning to maybe more desktop or laptop or server style systems, if that makes sense. The other thing I'll add in is uh, sometimes from a mobile perspective, the goal is going to be important. If my goal is to install a piece of malware and to gain persistent access to someone's text messages or emails or something. And again, I'm going down the political dissident route or the, you know, international kind of espionage journalism route where I want to read someone's text messages all the time and read what their phone is doing. And I want to get before the traffic encryption layers and that kind of stuff. That's likely going to be, you know, in, in the form of some code execution with some, some malware or an app install or a background code running or something like that. 
If I'm going another route, which is also very common for mobile devices where I want to steal credentials, for example, right? I might send you a, a spear phishing or a smishing, if you will, a spear phishing SMS or some other thing that I can use to, to, to fake you giving credentials or force you give credentials over to it, to my site, as opposed to the legitimate site. Um, that's another thing that you see because the phone, once again, becomes a little bit more of a, of an accessible device. And then last but not least, Chris, the other thing I'll throw in here, because we can probably go on about mobile devices for a while. But the other thing I'll add in is remember that mobile devices also sometimes act as MFA for people. It's your kind of, you know, your push or your ping or your duo identity or your Okta or your two-factor codes or whatever it might be. So, you know, if, if the goal of an adversary is to intercept those messages or intercept those codes, then they're going to have to change their approach a little bit because you're right. Applications do exist in a space where I would need a piece of code or a piece of malware to be active and running when I open my two-factor auth app and then screenshot it and quickly relay it to me so that I can beat the user. At, I mean, it's just, there's so many different variables in there. So a lot of times uh, when you see things like arbitrary code execution or whatnot, you're right. It does install code that we don't want it to do, but remember the target or the goal, the objective often becomes very different. Most of the time they're trying to get access to data that you can't really get anywhere else. Checkpoint researchers have unveiled a new sophisticated and fast-acting ransomware being called Rorschach. The ransomware appears to be unique in that it shares no overlaps that could easily attribute it as being a descendant of any known ransomware strains. It also doesn't contain any kind of branding, which is what we normally see from these ransomware groups. Apparently, it's very advanced and quite autonomous in that it does things automatically that are usually done manually during an enterprise-wide ransomware deployment. What else do we know about this, and how big of a deal is it to see something completely new like this? Yeah, so this is someone who's speaking to my Watchmen fans out there. The Rorschach ransomware, Rorschach malware, if you will. Um, again, this is, you know, we've talked countless times, Chris, we've talked countless times about the types of things that ransomware threat actors will do and what that kind of ecosystem looks like and stuff like that. You know, and oddly enough, I think... Sometimes you see the, both sides of the coin. Let me explain that a little bit. You know, if we have an organization who gets hit by a well-known piece of ransomware, everyone always questions like, well, there's plenty of detections out there. How did they get hit by it? Or did they miss the alerts or whatever it is? There's always, you know, some sort of someone else knew about this. So why wasn't it protected against, you know? However, for every piece of malware that was out there, and I've told folks this before, and it's like this weird, odd thing to realize. But for every piece of malware that was out there, there was always a first. There was always a first environment where that piece of malware landed successfully. So first off, there's a chance that we're just now seeing this, right? There's a chance that we're now just seeing the first public disclosure of it. And it's a brand new piece of malware that was written by a, either a brand new group or a group that decided to burn everything down and start all over again. We've talked uh, again about the infrastructures behind all of these. However, I think perhaps maybe the more interesting detail here is that it was DLL sideloading the Cortex XDR dump service tool. And I believe that is related to Palo Alto's Cortex XDR service. Um, but I found it interesting that they're utilizing that particular executable, if you will. Uh, and it was, it was Cortex XDR dump service version 7.3.0.16740 was uh, abused to sideload winutils.dll, which was the packed loader and injector. 
And that particular one would then use the config.ini file dropped by the initial dropper, if you will, to then configure the ransomware and kind of go from there. I think DOL sideloading, not a new technique. Configuration files on disk, not a new technique. I think taking advantage or taking over a security software is definitely an interesting side. That one might point a little bit more targeted, not from a Palo Alto sense, but targeted from a victim sense, meaning they knew the victim was running Cortex-XDR and decided to find a way to take advantage of that software. I think that's something that's out there. Other than that, it ended up being kind of fairly run-of-the-mill from a technique perspective. It was spreading around using domain GPOs, right, which we saw with LockBit. There, there were some unique features in the ransomware, which folks had not observed in ransomware before, but had observed in other malware. And, and I think, uh, you know, as researchers, as security practitioners, whenever Venn diagrams clearly overlap or don't overlap the way that we expected, it always feels a little bit new. But it just means that we're kind of seeing adversaries either change their tradecraft a little bit, or there's some new kids on the scene, right? It's always possible, too, that someone went and took a malware coding class in whatever illegitimate university is out there, and they just decided to break it down a little further. And they, you know, went back and utilized uh, there are kind of things that they had learned to create some ridiculous piece of ransomware that no one had ever seen before. You know, uh, Chris, you and I could go spend an afternoon and create a bicycle no one's ever seen before. But it's, 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 not, it's not like we reinvented the bike. You know, we just kind of took from there. The, the other thing that I'll note for everyone is there have been some really technical reports out there. And I dropped some DLL names in this description. As I was kind of going through some of the descriptions earlier, and there's a great breakdown from Checkpoint. There's one over at OnLab as well. Highly recommend going and reading and checking those out uh, if you're interested in what the ransomware can do or just how far it's been coded and developed. I definitely recommend checking those out because they're fantastic write-ups, huge nods to the folks on those teams. But again, it just comes down to a combination of different techniques that maybe we haven't seen that combination before, but everything other than that is actually fairly straightforward. Is the likelihood that this is a targeted development with the lack of marketing, do those two things combines point to maybe the actions of APT? I know we just talked about APT 43, who engages in cybercrime to raise funds. Does this smell like something like that? Yeah, interestingly enough, the I will tell you, it is not necessarily the lack of um, marketing or promotion, although that is that is interesting. It is more the, and, and again, I'm going off of what I've read about the research. I haven't played with this malware myself. But going off of the research that I've read, it is the use of the Cortex XDR dump service tool. That's the one that is giving me the most someone knew what they were doing inkling only because I and again, I, I don't I don't know exactly what type of I, I don't know how well how widespread the use of that executable is. So I'll use us as an example, Chris. If someone said they were sideloading via Lima Charlie, I would say we that footprint globally is not one that a ransomware author would use, right? A ransomware author is trying to get as big as they can, as wide as they can to get it, make as much money as they can. If you're going after or utilizing an executable based off of a security company, and that security company is a you know commercially signed tool, I, I tend to lean the route of someone expected Palo Alto tools to be in that environment. So it was that cover that they flew under. That is the one that's more interesting for me. Now, 
I will I will certainly step away from that and say maybe they were just researching tools. And I don't know if that tool is free to use or not. I guess I could look up right now. Um, I do not know if that tool is free to use or not, uh, in which case it might be free to use. And if it's free to use, then great. They just found a security tool that has a vulnerability associated with it. But that is a, you know, that's a subscription-based service. That's a Cortex XDR is a thing that people pay for. To have that executable show up and not be regarded as suspicious might just be the cover they were looking for. So a long answer to, to your question is, you know, I, I'm not inclined so much to lean towards the advanced feature set unless all of those weapons were being used at the same time. You know, what I'm looking for is for someone to come back and say, all right, this malware did things we've never seen before. It was coded in a way that we've never understood. It's written in a language that people barely know, or it's using subroutines and libraries that people barely know, right? I'm looking for like that bleeding edge kind of malware development to think that there was some elite team behind this. What I mean by that is, you know, the creation of the malware itself was lead team. I think more about how this malware was being distributed and loaded is perhaps a bigger sign of maybe what the individual behind it was targeting or, or they knew their environment very well. Because like I said, once you get past, and I'm looking through it kind of right now, once you get past the initial, how did this get there? It's DOL side loading with a config file. It's group policy. It's scheduled tasks. It's disabling the Windows firewall. It's clearing the event logs. I mean, it's deleting volume shadow copies. I mean, Chris, once you get past the initial infection, it's it's ransomware 101, you know? So that's where I tend to be like, all right, well, you're looking at a 10-step process. Steps one or two are absolutely amazing. Steps three through 10 are run-of-the-mill boring. So I, I tend to say, maybe let's focus on the loading part of it, the how the malware gets there, and that might be a bigger indicator. Efile.com, an IRS authorized e-file software service provider used by many for filing their tax returns has been caught serving JavaScript malware. Womp womp. Uh, security researchers state the malicious JavaScript file existed on efile.com for weeks. On March 17th, the Reddit thread surfaced where multiple efile.com users suspected the website was hijacked. The website would show a fake SSL error and then try and get the user to download a next stage payload, which eventually gave the attacker a backdoor into the device which gives them a foothold for any kind of lateral movement or initial access to a corporate network. This is another case of trusted software being used as an attack vector. Do you know anything else about this and how the infection chain worked? And uh, has the attack been attributed to anybody yet? So I'll tell you right now, it is not a coincidence whatsoever that there is a tax website that has fallen under attack. Uh, I'm not sure who's behind this one. And perhaps maybe by the time this, this episode gets out, we will have some attribution behind it. But I will say that going after a tax website in the first four months of the U.S. tax season is a very, very, very common approach. It is, you know, this is high time for tax fraud and high time for I know users are going to be downloading tax software. So I'm going to compromise that software or I'm going to compromise that chain and stuff like that. I know users are going to efile.com and they are expecting to download something, right? So an adversary who takes over that particular process has already subverted the trust. So I, I think more this is just probably the same type of attack that you would expect to see in these types of situations. And what I mean by that is I'm not giving the adversaries any credit, but more of this is, you know, this is exactly what an opportunistic attack looks like. 
Um, I am an adversary. I want to find a way to get my malware out there. What types of things are people going to a lot right now? Where can I maybe perhaps get the most bang for my buck, if you will? Oh, a tax website in the months of March and April in the United States? Perfect place, right? The flip side of that is these types of attacks are under attack all the time for those exact reasons, which I just described. They're really high value targets. If you look at it from the other side and you say, hey, I can get anyone who's downloading tax software to download my malware at the same time. Oh, and by the way, it's March 17th in the United States. That's a huge hot commodity, right? So I think that you've just got an uh, an adversary who probably found an opportunistic attack in this case. Uh, again, the, the attack is at the network layer at, at the at the web level. The website shows a fake SSL error, gets the user to download a payload, which would eventually then turn into malware with backdoor access and stuff like that. I think you're seeing kind of a classic watering hole attack where I've got folks coming to the location and I know they're there to download something. So I'm going to take over that process for them. So nothing surprising, just a poor management of the efile.com website. Yeah, without without knowing, and I, I did read up on this one before we got here, uh, before we started talking about it. I did go a little bit further to see if I could find out exactly what had happened. I mean, it does look like it was probably some sort of script manipulation, you know, cross-site scripting or something like that. There, there has been some mention of a particular JS file that was associated with this. And what you maybe likely had was, you know, someone found an ex, a vulnerability that they were able to just inject some malicious JavaScript code into efile.com. Again, I hate to say it. I've said it twice so far, but vulnerable software gets exploited, just like we saw, you know, just like we talked about a little bit earlier. So maybe, and this may come out in some subsequent findings, you know, maybe efile.com fell behind on a patch update or there was a third party library that they weren't aware that was vulnerable or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I, again, I, I think this is just someone found a really good vulnerability at eFile.com and decided to use it to their advantage. And that just happened to also be in March of a tax time. And interestingly enough, you know, I, one line that I did read based in some of the uh, discussions that we saw, or based on some of the blog posts that I read, um, the security incident was limited to eFile.com. And not like IRS's e-file infrastructure or anything like that. So I know we're in high tax season and everyone's hopefully getting them done right now in the United States. But this was an e-file.com software issue, JavaScript issue, code vulnerability, whatever it might have been, that just got taken advantage of at the absolute wrong time for it to be taken advantage of. All right. Next one I got, the uh, CrowdStrike Falcon Overwatch team has recently observed threat actors exploit WinRAR self-extracting archives containing decoy files by adding malicious functionality to install backdoors and target systems without detection. I think this one is serious because it can easily be overlooked by defenders and has the potential to provide the adversary with a persistent backdoor when when paired with a specific registry key. What else do we know about this and is there anything defenders should be doing to make sure nothing slips by? So interestingly enough, this, it's funny, SFX or self-extracting files have been around for decades now. I mean, this is something that, you know, you've been able to do with WinRAR, 7-Zip and that kind of stuff for a long time. I would perhaps go, you know, I, I akin this a little bit to when we started to see ISO files being sent in emails. Uh, I akin this a little bit towards an adversary or a malware author previously delivered their malware via VBA macros or VBE or, or, you know, HTA files or something like they had a technique they were using, if you will. And they maybe ended up having that didn't work out so well. It wasn't as successful. 
So instead, what they were doing is they were like, all right, well, let me wrap, you know, my files inside of a WinRAR self-extracting command. The For anyone who's curious, the logical step that you jump over there is typically if I download a zip file and I double click on that zip file, it opens the file. It doesn't necessarily extract it for me and it doesn't have, it, it may have, but it's going to prompt me for any default behavior or anything like that, that it's got built into it. This one changed up a little bit. Uh, only because, again, a self-extracting file jobs on the system. Um, self-extracting files are very, very common inside of a lot of different environments. It's very common to wrap everything up inside of a self-extracting file, send it out to a department or new hires or something and say, hey, open this thing and your different types of uh, you know documents that you need or your onboarding stuff is inside or anything like that. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's certainly what happened in this case was a self-extracting file was created it was then kind of, you know, emailed out or sent out. There was a password required, oddly enough, in order to run it or open it up and things like that. Um, and what would happen is, you know, you get into an interesting chain of events here. We saw this back in October 2022. Trustway folks talked about Emotet doing this, where a self-extracting zip would extract a self-extracting zip that had a password, automatically enter the password and execute its content without any further user input. And of course, a decoy file was dropped on the system to make the user think it's kind of like the cookie, right? You can't just give someone a blank zip file, execute malware because they're going to get suspicious. But Chris, if I tell you I've got your resume inside of a self-extracting zip file and you open it, your resume pops up. And then in the background, there's a bunch of malware getting installed. You don't really think anything of it. And I think that's what we see in cases like this is it comes back to the high level question. How can I trick users to run my malware? so that it executes inside of their environment. And I think this is just another way to go about doing it. Um, again, once you have opened that or once you've kind of kicked that process off, again, huge nod to the folks over at CrowdStrike for their blog posts and their analysis on this, but it goes and it uses um, utilman.exe, which is an accessibility application. It goes through and sets a registry key that establishes some persistence. And then next thing we know, you've now got additional malware on the system and things like that. So I think it's an interesting approach. I think we'll continue to see these different types of various methods for years to come, especially as we see less reliance on VBA and VBEs because those are being disabled by default. So you're going to see adversaries branch into other types of delivery mechanisms, compression, encryption, or obfuscation mechanisms as well. And if I'm not mistaken, I think at the end of the day, this SFX or this self-extracting executable went all the way to like uh, setting up PowerShell prompts maybe even spawning task manager for some additional persistence. So the way that defenders would go about defending against these, if you have self-extracting executables in your environment, you obviously can't just deny all of them. You could certainly look at process history chains, process child or sorry, parent and then descendants to see what types of things are running. I, I would make a huge argument and say that in very few environments out there is, you know, an EXE spawning WinRAR, spawning PowerShell, spawning Task Manager, like that exact sequence of events is one that should be looked into. And I, I would certainly look at process history trees for that reason. Um, I would go to the network level, right? If I've got PowerShell reaching out to the network and it's not ordinary for my environment, I would look for those types of things. And then also another interesting thing for defenders to do in your environment Take apart for blog posts like this, uh, for things where they talk about these self-extracting executables, they mention a bunch of different built-in system commands that are available. And I'll read through a couple just because I've got it in front of me here. But this malware makes use of cmd.exe, PowerShell, Task Manager, utilman.exe, 
And I think that might be the only one, but then there's WinRAR and 7-Zip that's mentioned in here as well. A good exercise for a sock. And again, a, 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 another huge nod as well. Chris, one of our huge, huge big fans and supporters and someone we're a big fan of as well, Eric Capo on his blog where he talks about being a sock analyst. One exercise I've seen Eric do is kick off a process inside of the environment and then go look for that process inside of your telemetry. So if I'm going through an article like this and I see a bunch of different system commands being used, I'll tell you all right now, these are legitimate system commands. So their pure execution is not malicious. But let me go the other route. Utilman.exe, how often is that executed inside of my environment? Is it a thousand times a minute? Is it once a day on two machines, right? You could start to establish some frequency levels and then start to look for anomalies from that. Things like cmd.exe, task manager, and PowerShell might execute a lot more often. But then I can also look at command line arguments as well. So I could look for instances of PowerShell with perhaps, you know, base 64 encoding is a really low hanging fruit detection that you could look for. So I think when you read things like this, if you're a defender or a SOC analyst, security analyst, or anyone out there, uh, look at the little individual steps that the malware chain includes. Go see if you can find those steps in your environment. Just go to a random Windows system, run utilman.exe, and then go find it in your SOC. See what that, see what that looks like. And start going from there to build maybe good detections. And then, Chris, that's also another huge, subtle, subtle, but very apparent nod to uh, Eric's blog and also series about how to become a SOC analyst. And I think malware like this is a great example of ways to test those types of analytical skills. Yeah, that's some great advice. And I'll make sure to link that article in the show notes for this one to anybody listening who wants to check it out. It's, it's a great series. I got to say, I love seeing these ones. On the 4th and 5th of April, a law enforcement task force spanning agencies across 17 countries, including the FBI, Europol, and the Dutch police, have disrupted the infamous browser cookie market known as yes. Genesis Market. Genesis Market. <laughs> yeah, they approached hundreds of its users based on the information gathered. House searches would be conducted and users were either arrested or approached for a serious, you know, knock and talk kind of conversation. For our listeners, what was the Genesis Market and what was being bought and sold there? Yeah, so the Genesis market was another one of those underground markets. Uh, again, a huge international consortium came together and brought this one down, which is typically what it takes to bring down these types of markets and things like that. Uh, the Genesis market had been around since 2018, I believe, and they were one of the largest, if not the largest, underground marketplace that was selling credentials, browser cookies, browser fingerprints, and things like that. Really things that you would maybe used to steal someone's identity or look like another user or, or something like that, you know? And uh, they were a very prolific market in selling these types of things. And interestingly enough, they, you know, had a global audience as usual, full of all sorts of bad guys from all over the place. And this international consortium got together and brought them all down. There have been some really, really great reports on that. I think from a long tail effect, one thing it does is it shows to other illegitimate sites and other illegitimate, illegitimate operators out there that you never know when your day's coming. So, you know, you may make a little bit of a career in selling these types of stolen data points and things like that that you shouldn't have access to and is definitely breaking a lot of laws in a lot of countries. But, you know, law enforcement's paying attention. And I think that's one big takeaway there. The other thing that happens sometimes is when these big types of marketplaces get taken down is you'll see sometimes a little bit of a slowdown or a disruption because you got to remember, similar to the architecture and the infrastructure things we've talked about before, 
there are likely some adversarial groups out there who base their entire credential theft process on Genesis Market. So that's now been disrupted. So they've got to go find a replacement. But Chris, as you and I both know, there's always two sides to every economic coin. The groups that have to go find a replacement, well, there's also going to be at least someone out there who knows there needs to be a replacement. So I think what we might see is we'll see another one pop up or we'll see the number two one rise in popularity and things like that. But a huge hat tip to law enforcement. Every time we see some of these broken down, it, it takes a bad sight off the internet and it gives law enforcement really big kudos. And it also tells some adversaries like, hey, you're not able to operate completely free. You're not able to operate carte blanche, right? You're, you're selling illegal data in countries that don't like it. We're going to come after you. We're going to find you. And yeah, that's the other side of it too, right? This isn't just you get arrested and you go down to the jail and you're out in the morning. These are home raids. This is digital evidence collections. This is Interpol. This is international law that's taking place here. This is not fun for the folks who decided to, you know, break these laws and stuff like that. So I guess hopefully as a deterrent to future criminals, maybe don't lean so much on the stolen credentials side of stuff. The uh, cybersecurity game of whack-a-mole continues. Exactly. It always will. It always will. And some more good news to take us out. Microsoft's digital crime unit and cybersecurity software company Fortra along with the Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center, are taking technical and legal action to disrupt cracked legacy copies of everybody's favorite, Cobalt Strike, which have been used by cyber criminals to distribute malware, including ransomware. As I'm sure anybody listening already knows, Cobalt Strike is a legitimate and popular post-exploitation tool used for adversary simulation, which has historically been hijacked, altered, and abused by cyber criminals. Do you have any idea how they're going to be taking these instances offline? If they're able to do it legally or technically, it really begs the question, why have they waited so long to do something? There's a few different ways to take down post-exploitation kits like this, assuming you have access and visibility to it. So there's two sides to this. The first is Cobalt Strike. The second is abused Microsoft software. Uh, Abused Microsoft software, I, I would assume, would come from certain types of telemetry, probably from Windows operating systems. So, you know, again, Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit is partnering with organizations to do this. They're likely doing it with a certain objective, or I should say there's, there's an original objective for, to ease the pressure on a certain industry or to ease the pressure um, in a certain situation. So I think you mentioned they are working with Fortra and then the Health ISAC or the Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center. That is, if I had to call it, I would likely say there's a bullet point somewhere that says they want to ease the pressure on the health sector from a from a certain perspective here. That's not to say every sector wouldn't benefit from this. That's not to say every sector won't. But that's probably what the goal was originally. You know, we want to make this easier for hospitals to not be ransomed and stuff like that. And Cobalt Strike appears to be the number one thing there. So from an abused Microsoft perspective, it might mean something like, uh, you know, we're going to code sign differently, or we're going to lock down applications a little bit better or a little bit differently. Um, one question you asked, which is instance, uh, in- interesting, was if they have the ability to do this, why have they waited so long to do something? Sometimes the technical capability to implement these types of measures really actually haven't been around as long as folks think they might be. You know, a lot of us think of the lifespan of Windows and we say, well, if you could have prevented malware yesterday, why didn't you prevent it 10 years ago? And it's like, well, the scope of the Windows operating system has changed so much in that past decade. 
the, the, the types of underlying technologies just weren't there. So, you know, so there might have been a technological thing where someone said, hey, if we enable this and do that, we can kill this thing from happening. Right. Uh, that's one possibility. Another possibility is to simply look at the state of the industry. And again, the health ISAC being involved, maybe taking a look at the state of the industry and being like, all right, we noticed that most of these folks are running outdated software. So we're going to make it easier to upgrade or, you know, we're going to cover that or sponsor those or something. That's, that's one way of going about it. From the Cobalt Strike perspective, Cobalt Strike actually has a very interesting and unique property to it. So if you go and download Cobalt Strike and then configure just a vanilla out-of-the-box run-of-the-mill server, meaning a C2 server that a piece of malware would beacon out to, there's actually quite a few signatures that some folks have developed that you can go and find that. And in fact, there's some really good blog posts out there about folks who go and scan, the not scan the internet, but scan sites that scan the internet. So think about like Census or Shodan who are scanning and collecting metadata. You can go and perform searches that will actually go and identify Cobalt Strike servers. So you could just go and just simply say, hey, I've, you know, I, I'm going to go run a scan against this particular subnet. And if I come across any Cobalt Strike servers in that based on the fingerprinting of the server itself, I'm going to immediately block that at the firewall. Well, make that programmatic and share it with anybody and everyone. And now we have a Cobalt Strike blocker, right? So at a very simple technological level, it's it's possible. It's just a huge lift to scan the internet every day and get that happening. Because the moment someone, you know, if you think if I'm going to scan 10 IP addresses and I'm going to scan one every hour, okay, if you scan number three, it's going to be another nine hours before you get back to two. Well, if I register two right after you scan three, I just bought nine hours of C2 time, you know? So it ends up being one of those mathematical games where it's kind of like they probably have a bunch of technical signatures and the technical acumen is there to be able to say, hey, we're going to implement these defenses, do these blocks. Uh, Again, Fortra being involved, I I don't know anyone at Fortra or or anything about how the company works, but I'll say they're probably offering some services to help with this as well. And I think when you see partnerships like this, it's only good for the industry. But again, Chris, as I mentioned in the beginning, I think kind of helping the health sector out is probably the initial goal here based on all the types of ransomware cases we've seen. So they're working on that initiative and then others will benefit from that, you know, trickle down approach as well. Trickle down, trickle lateral, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Given we've seen so many uh, dark market post-exploitation frameworks the ones we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, is is this going to do anything to slow down cybercrime or just force bad actors to change their tool sets? I think and I hope it will do something to slow down cybercrime in the unique specific sectors that it's probably targeted to do. That's why I, again, hypothetical, I might be wrong, but that's why I went out on a limb and said this is probably to help a particular sector. That sector will hopefully see a little bit of breathing room for a little bit. That industry or that targeted group of companies or whatever it is will hopefully see a little bit of breathing room there. But you're right. Uh, you mentioned whack-a-mole in our last topic, and I'll mention it again right here as well. This is this is whack-a-mole. If my CrowdStrike instance doesn't work anymore, I'm going to download you know Sliver or whatever it's called. If that doesn't work, I'm going to download Brute Rattel. If that doesn't work, I'm you know what I mean. It's kind of like dealer's choice can just pick whatever they want to work through this. But again, to come out of the gate and say you know we're going to cut down the use of illegitimate cobalt strike. There's some threat actors who have moved way past cobalt strike because they saw this coming, you know? So 
I think what you've got is you've got a statistical representation of a post-exploitation tool inside of an industry. That industry needs some help defending against it. They're going to get a little bit of breathing room, but we've said it before and I'll say it again. If this particular approach or this combined effort, this consortium or whatever is going to impact revenue, revenue is going to try and pop back up. So to see these threat actors and adversaries change their tactics is, is a likely response. And you'll probably see them move towards different types of exploits. The interesting side of this is where Microsoft mentioned not only are they trying to disrupt cracked copies of the Cobalt Strike, they're also trying to bring down the abused Microsoft software. I think that second little nugget is the part that goes towards additional post-exploitation kits and perhaps shutting down or closing down or maybe making it harder to exploit some other vulnerabilities that are more cross-kit as opposed to just Cobalt Strike. So I think we'll see some breathing room for those specific industries and stuff like that, but I don't think we're going to see a significant global drop in the use of post-exploitation kits, Cobalt Strike or not. Awesome. Well, I can see we're at time here, Matt. So thank you so much for joining us again. I really enjoy these conversations every week. Chris, as always, thanks for having me. And again, a huge thanks to everyone that we have mentioned or talked about on this week's episode. And a huge thanks to our Intel community, our Intel uh, Slack, the folks who are in that channel doing all the great stuff, sharing great news and just keeping the conversation going. Thank you all. And we'll look forward to seeing you again. Take care. Thanks, Chris. Before we move on to the next segment, I just want to take a moment and introduce an upcoming conference called Mission Control taking place in Arlington, Virginia on October 5th and 6th this year. To tell us a little bit about the conference and who it's for, I have Maxime Lamoth-Brassard, founder and CEO of Lima Charlie here with me. Mission Control is a cybersecurity conference that we're putting together with a very kind of distinctive direction. We wanted to put something together that was looking at innovation and change in cybersecurity. So uh, we're really looking forward to getting different points of views and to see where people think that the, the direction of how we build cybersecurity should be done going forward. Why did you decide to put on a conference? We decided to put on the Mission Control Conference because we realized that there's a lot of cybersecurity conferences out there that are targeting practitioners or you know security you know threat intelligence some of the very kind of the fundamentals of cybersecurity but nobody was really kind of putting together a whole picture of where as an industry at a macroscopic level how we do things so not necessarily the things that we do but how do we approach them how do we do them getting all those different perspectives so when we had that realization um, we decided to put on the conference together. Who is Mission Control for? Mission Control is for a lot of people. Um, I, I think fundamentally, I guess I would say anybody in cybersecurity uh, should be interested, obviously. But uh, it's really for people that probably look, uh, you know, that, that know about cybersecurity pretty well. So maybe not so much brand new to the field. People that have seen how it's done today and that have thoughts and opinions and are looking for, uh, you know, maybe getting out of firefighting, just changing the way that things are done. So if you've ever sort of had those kinds of, you know, higher level thoughts about, you know, why are things this way, we hope that you're going to get a ton from the conference. What can I expect if I attend Mission Control? 
If you attend Mission Control, you can expect many different things. Some hands-on workshops, training, but also a lot of talks uh, given by people that see cybersecurity very differently. So we hope that this kind of gives you new ideas, new thoughts, makes you want to try different things. And, and really fundamentally, at the end of the day, we hope that, that you can leave with the, the drive to try to do things differently and maybe talk about your experiments and your outcomes next year. You can learn more by visiting the Mission Control website at missioncontrol.org. That's M-S-S-N-C-T-R-L dot org. Up next, my conversation with Dave Cullen, field CTO for Otorio. Thanks for being on the show today, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, to get started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Dave Cullen, field CTO for Atorio. We're an Israeli cybersecurity startup where we focus on OT security, mainly uh, with the goal of protecting everything you operate and taking a risk-based approach to better protecting your critical environments. OT is one of those areas of cybersecurity that I think doesn't get talked about enough. You know, I think data breaches and ransomware events have pushed cybersecurity into the forefront of a lot of conversations at both the board and governmental level, but there's been very little public conversation about how vulnerable our infrastructure is. Is this a perception thing and people are actually working on this stuff or is it not getting the attention it needs? Well, ultimately, the attention has been increasing, like you said. I think there's been a lot of uh, good initiatives, a lot of awareness that, that has really grown over the last few years. Um, certainly, governments are, are being active on this front. Um, unfortunately, that's often a lagging indicator, meaning something has happened. Certainly, there's sector-by-sector sector awareness that uh, you know cybersecurity needs to be uh, paid attention to in these critical environments, and that oftentimes these assets have been, dare I say it, the last to be considered in, in terms of their security program and, and improving security posture. But, uh, you know, I'd say, again, awareness is increasing, a lot of great things happening. So when people think of infrastructure, they think of things like water, oil pipelines, and electricity. What other areas that we all rely on are all vulnerable to these kinds of attacks? Well, I think we've seen over the last few years with the pandemic, especially that the supply chain is way more complex than what we probably think about on a day-to-day -day basis. And certainly when you see disruptions in the supply chain, you see the dramatic impact it has just on everyday life, like grocery shelves being empty or, you know, gasoline, kind of a rush on the, on the gas station and things like that. So what we see is that while critical infrastructure is of utmost importance, we are very dependent on, I think, a larger set of manufacturing and, and entities that are important to the supply chain than what we, what we typically think about. And so security needs to extend down there. Right. Yeah, I, I think it was no pet shit. I'm trying to remember the attack that shut down Merck and, and all those guys. But uh, same kind of outcome where just everything freezes to a halt. Nobody can get groceries and basically life's disrupted because of a computer attack. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so the Colonial Pipeline attack is probably the most recent and significant infrastructure attack that everybody's familiar with. Because the pipeline transported oil from refineries to industrial markets, the intrusion was deemed a national security danger. And as a result, President Joe Biden declared a state of emergency, about as serious as it gets. From what I understand, this was an attack on the IT system and not the OT system. 
but the result was the same. Where is the line, and do we even think of these as separate security concerns in that environment? So I think we need to break that down a little bit, because you're right. The attack did originate in IT. It did not migrate to OT. Uh, yet you had a situation where you know, the threat was real. The threat was there. So there's, there's an adjacency or the ability for threats to migrate because as we automate, as we digitize, these are, you know, networks become way more complex and the connectivity increases. So while, we, you know, we can't really uh, speculate or put words in, in Colonial Pipeline's mouth, certainly it appears like the OT environment was isolated intentionally just because there wasn't that confidence that they could stop the threat from migrating. Now, this is actually a good design choice in terms of resiliency to be able to segment and, and on-demand segregate your OT environment away from IT. But the word of caution there is that needs to be well-planned. It needs a significant response capability and expertise. And no matter how much we automate, I think in terms of critical infrastructure, we need to remember, we need to retain that ability to operate manually. And that's what appeared to uh, not remain with Colonial. They had to sh shut the pipeline down, where ideally, I would much rather see it segmented and maintaining manual control. Are you talking about like a, a type of air gap that they have between the IT and the OT system, where if the threat comes in through the IT system, they can flick the switch, isolate the OT, and then people can show up on site with uh, laptops and plug them in and run the infrastructure from there? Yeah, in a basic form, yes, uh, for sure. And I think there's great opportunities for defense in depth, segmentation, creating true zones and conduits. And, you know, still our, our best model is probably the Purdue model. How do we build our architectures to align with the Purdue model, but then look at up-to-date influences, if you will, as, as networks modernize, as our digitization requirements increase and accelerate, how do we you know, weave everything into what's considered best practice and those models that have been around for a long time? Yeah, I'm going to have to apologize. Uh, I don't know the Purdue model. Can you kind of explain it at a high level? For sure. Uh, so the Purdue model is widely accepted uh, reference architecture for industrial environments, and, and, and quite often we'll see this used across different sectors. And, and it's provided a very solid standard for securing these environments. It'll start at level zero, which is those, are those physical components that build products, right? Again, back to your motors, pumps, sensors. That's your most secure zone. And then level one is typically where we'd see those PLCs uh, you know, the systems that have control capability can monitor and send commands will sit at, at level one. Level two are really the devices the overall, that control the overall processes within the system. So there may be some SCADA, there may be some HMI, but again, the control capability is there. So if we take level zero through level two, these are typically should have segmentation or be isolated. To, you know, to follow best practice. Then at level three, that's where those you know, management of production workflows would typically occur. So that's your MES, your MOMS uh, type systems would sit in level three. Now there's a concept of, some might call this level 3.5. I will typically call it the industrial DMZ. 
So this is where we want to create a barrier between IT and OT. Because we realize in, in modern networks, modern operations, we need moving data between the business network and the OT network. So the industrial DMZ is what creates that secure conduit, if you will. should be firewalled on each side. If you want to stay really true to the standard, you should have separate vendors of firewalls. Like It goes to being that prescriptive, but oftentimes jump boxes you know, the systems that you need to access what we've talked about, the things, you know, maybe some of those systems at at level three, the access mechanism would sit in that industrial DMZ. And then level four is typically the enterprise systems that are ingesting or interacting with data that's coming from the control environment. So ERP would be, uh, you know, probably the best example of something that might sit at level four or connector for your ERP. And then level five is your enterprise network. And really, there should be a lot of limits in the ability to go from level five to any of those other, you know, levels three or, or below. So, and that's like your standard enterprise yeah, yeah, your, IT. Your average user workstation, which should really have ideally no knowledge of the control network's existence, right? A lot of our listeners work in more IT environments. They're protecting, you know, organizations that run in the cloud. Can you describe what the architecture of a typical industrial control system looks like? I know there are programmable logic controllers or PLCs, and then we have SCADA software and proprietary digital control systems. Can you describe each one of these and how they kind of work together? Yeah. So we often have, let's call them physical components that build products, you know, things like motors, pumps, sensors, valves right? Those things that actually do the work, so to speak. And upstream of that, you will have a programmable logic controller, a PLC. You might have a remote terminal unit like an RTU or an intelligent electronic device like IED. And those really are the systems that monitor and send commands to those devices, right? They're the ones that will control those devices. And then an upstream from that, we'll start to see our, our human interface, right? So HMIs and uh, SCADA, right? The software that really enables humans to monitor and manage these processes and interact with the PLCs and the devices below. And then, you know, upstream from, from SCADA and, and that kind of human interface, we'll start to, you know, see systems and this becoming more and more prevalent that manage production workflows. So, you know, whether it's batch management, manufacturing operations management, or execution systems, and then historians. So moving data around and interacting with that data. And so this sort of, you know, this is the popular hierarchy, uh, whether we're talking manufacturing, uh, critical structure utilities, fairly universal concepts from there. How they're deployed will change based on the, the sector, but the concepts stay the same. Okay, so uh, SCADA or digital control systems are a software layer that like live on an operating system that most of our listeners would be familiar with. Yeah, typically. In, in when people are attacking systems like this, is that usually how they get through to the OT systems? Are they coming through the internet, through the operating system, and down into the SCADA layer? Well, certainly... That, that's the easiest migration path. So that's what we'd see if we did attack surface management or monitoring. A lot of the attack vectors are going to be based on being able to migrate or, or laterally move to those popular OSs, perhaps where we see end-of-life OS. We see a lot of that. 
you know, well-documented and exploitable vulnerabilities, et cetera, et cetera. Are you talking like uh, Windows XP machines running in the corner somewhere? Yeah, yeah. You know, SMB version one is always hanging around there, right? So just <laughs> just utilize that. But uh, but as an industry, we like to, you know, dare I say it, we like to talk about the kind of native threats in PLCs and whatnot, right? We've seen that time and time again. And while I, you know, I don't discount those, those are very real and they have been utilized. We have to look at the occurrences. It hasn't been significant. And so oftentimes, you know, when, if you're thinking like an attacker, you go for the easiest path. And well, for sure, sophisticated, high-grade, dare I say, nation-state attacks are possible. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit in the, just the general hygiene. And, you know, when you have an engineering workstation that hasn't been life-cycled, because uh, it hasn't, hasn't had to have been life-cycled, and it doesn't have the appropriate protection in place or the appropriate visibility to know what's going on, then that, that needs more focus. There's often that low-hanging fruit that's available. Yeah, that sounds a lot like the stuff we see in IT environments where 90% of the attacks are because they don't have 2FA enabled or something like that. There's easy stuff to fix. It's just somebody's got to fix it. Right. And, and as we have digitized and remembering, you know, we might have assets that are, you know, even from a, 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 an operating system perspective, 10 years older or more. Like you said, there might be Windows XP on, the, on that shop floor, but it's controlling a million dollar a day function. And so, you know, replacing it isn't always feasible. Upgrading it or patching even isn't always feasible. That you could be actually have the potential to introduce new risk into the environment by doing so. So that's where, you know, I come back to defense in depth. How do you better protect these environments? How do you gain the visibility? How do you really, you know, focus on mitigating controls and having that end-to-end awareness of, of what's going on in the environment. Do PLCs have any kind of standard operating system? I'm assuming this is like a microcontroller, basically, right? Yeah, so it's typically a real-time operating system. You could say it's standardized, yet it's often controlled by the OEM vendor, right? So it will be, in a way, black-boxed um, and closed. And, and uh, while we could argue that it would be better to to implement security into there, and certainly there's a there are discussions becoming more active on that front. Again, I come back to the point of look what these devices are controlling. So the fact that these devices are controlling you know mission critical functions, it, it becomes difficult to take say a, a commodity approach or an IT based approach to to cybersecurity. And, you know, the OEM vendors have, have been getting better, and there's generally more awareness and really starting to bring in security in by design. But still, at the core of the controller, it's difficult because of all the different functions it needs to be able to perform in a very safe, reliable, and productive manner. What do you see as the biggest factors slowing down the increase in security in these OT environments? Is it simply a, a matter of cost? associated with upgrading these older systems? Cost is certainly there. You know, budgets need to be allocated. And yet what we're seeing, and we've been doing some uh, surveys in the marketplace over the past few years, and, and certainly the awareness of the budget needing to increase is there. And organizations are budgeting more money. Yet this doesn't always guarantee success. These projects are difficult. 
And, and here's one, one thing that I'm seeing and that uh, personally I'm quite passionate about is what we really have isn't as much a technology problem. It is very much a people and process challenge that, that organizations need to work through. We have these environments that have been running for a very long time, and they need to stay running, and they need to be safe. They need to keep the workers safe, to keep public safe. They need to be reliable and productive. But now we need more. We need to, you know, as we digitize, and there's a lot of positive drivers for, uh, you know, extracting data, doing analytics, really starting to modernize these environments. We're now bringing these environments onto what I would consider a modern network. And so that's a different skill set than what's needed to keep the plant running in a way. So cross-departmental collaboration is, is key. Departments need to work together. IT and OT need to work together. And that hasn't always been a, uh, dare we say, a friendly relationship, right? There's been times where Okay, IT security moves in, runs a scan on the shop floor, takes things down. And yet there's the perception, I think, you know, it's valid, is that we can't expect security best practice to be, you know, pervasive on the shop floor. Again, it's a different discipline. So how do we collaborate? How do we, uh, you know, mutually adopt best practices to ma maintain the kind of that core goals, the core goals of, of, of OT? yet bringing over some of that best practice from IT. Um, do you have any advice for somebody who's running a manufacturing plant or, or some kind of business that relies on OT devices who is starting to think about security and, and move towards that? What are kind of the first steps or low-hanging fruit? Like, how do they begin to make their process more secure? Right. Well, this is where, I mean, the universal standard of you need to know what you have to be able to, to protect it or to secure it. That applies here as well. You need to focus on being able to get a deep asset visibility, having a, kind of that awareness or context of what an asset is, but also what its role is, you know, knowing what it might be controlling or, you know, is it a sensor or, you know, just kind of that persona or the characteristics of the asset. And being able to bring that into the bigger picture so you can you know, add context, how does this, what are the sum of all parts? How does this all work together? And then get to the point where you'd have a, a pretty stable or solid baseline of this is what we have. This is how it's operating. This is its typical behavior, right? And I think, you know, to circle back to previous points, having, you know, personas at the table, the different people that are responsible, whether it's at the network layer, the controls layer, et cetera, et cetera. Having those people together in that process really, really helps because there's a lot of collaboration can, that can happen as you, as you dig deeper, as you figure, you know, uh, figure out what things are. There's always going to be things that you might not detect properly or, or you need to dig deeper into, well, what is that? Why is it plugged in here? A lot of those menial and mundane tasks that I think once you get a handle on those, you're setting yourself up well to start building on top of that. Because really, a lot of the strategies from there will look on how do you gain visibility into what's happening in the environment in as real-time fashion as possible, but also how do you better protect it? So bringing in firewalls in some form of segmentation, while we would assume that that's already in place, uh, is still something that organizations are working on. Get the OT separate from the IT. 
So you at least have a place to, you know, really have that very deep visibility into what's moving across your boundaries, but also have that ability that if you do need to, to kind of choke the traffic between the environments because there might be a threat or something like that, you should make sure you have that ability, right? So you can rip the wires out of the wall just in case. Uh, it does not have to be very high tech. From uh, my utility sector past, we did have that. Pull this wire, pull this cable. Uh, one thing I read about recently was uh, Mandiant reported some Chinese APTs trying to get persistence on these SonicWall Edge devices. Do you think we're going to see more and more of this push from APTs to, to go slow and low and get persistence on these devices? Oh, I think so. I think it'll be, uh, you know, it, it's an attack vector that can be easily leveraged, right? And I think as more disparate device types enter the environment, let's let's use the, just the general term of IoT, where you have sensors, you have all sorts of different devices that have typically a you know maybe a single function really. They're performing this function in this environment, and oftentimes can go uh, without the appropriate checks and balances. Right? They'll just be deployed because it's gaining something even down to, you know, maybe it's a display screen on the shop floor that, that's putting up productivity statistics or something like that. You have all of these assets that, that may exist in the environment that just don't have the same level of scrutiny or, or visibility. And so if you want to plant threats, very easy to do so. Is there any other topics you think we should cover? So I, I, I think the other the other element to look at is how do you create awareness across your supply chain? Certainly there's been a lot of discussion about supply chain security, third-party risk, especially as you get into more of the regulated entities and, and those who have been a little deeper into OT security because they have the regulatory requirement. There's a much more you know, deeper awareness of, of, of supply chain and, the, and that risk. But I look at it a little bit differently in that um, there's a great opportunity. There's a great opportunity to be able to share security best practice and standards. And yes, there's attestation requirements and there needs to be sign off. And, you know, the standards could be perceived as onerous, but I think the more that there's collaboration there and a true understanding, I mean, back to that point, everything's integrated these days. And so if, if one one kind of piece of the supply chain gets knocked offline, the others just shut down. And so not to be too cliche or anything or what whatnot, but while standards are important and, and attestation and testing, all those are pieces. You can't go without collaborating and, and trying to, you know, mutually develop best practice. Mm -hmm. And I think with like attacks like solar winds where we've seen this supply chain get compromised, like how fast bad actors get access to hundreds of thousands of targets. Right, yes. Um, the criticality of these environments, if that were to happen, is much greater than what we've seen before, right? And so how do we not utilize paranoia and fear-mongering and, and, and tactics like that, but how do we make and continue to make just constant progress forward, continuous improvement, always get better. You know, security is not a destination. It, it's, it's not something we ever achieve. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a journey. I can get, you know, I can, I can dish up more cliches, but uh, 
I, I, I think this is, this is where it has to become part of the DNA, part of the culture. And regulation, compliance, all those things are great for building awareness and, and really starting to build that foundation. But that's not the end. It's, it should assist in building that culture of security and helping organizations, big and small, be able to increase mm-hmm. their security posture. Yeah, oftentimes I think compliance just ends up being a checkbox and people think because they check the box, they're safe. But no, you've just met the requirement. Right. Uh, Again, like I said before, it is oftentimes a lagging indicator. It's being built Mm -hmm. based on what has already happened and in response to things that have happened. But also, uh, you know, it has defined scope because it needs to have defined scope. So... Does your regulatory requirement cover all of your assets? I think the answer realistically is probably no. And so how do you build your security program that can take all of the best practice that compliance programs really drive and you know, be able to, to have that really be brought into your entire security estate? The one question I ask of everyone on the show, and this can be as wide or as narrow as you want, do you have any predictions for the future? <laughs> The rate of change is going to continue to increase. And certainly, you know, I can say it a bit tongue-in-cheek with OT, is I could start talking about technologies we're going to see, and if anybody comes from the IT world, they say, well, that's been in IT for a while. And yes, that's true, right? So we're seeing more things like software-defined networking, virtualization, edge computing, containerization, those sorts of technologies taking a you know, greater hold in the OT environment. They are moving in there. But I think what we will see is, you know, a lot more that becomes software driven, perhaps that devs, hopefully sec ops approach, if you will, translating some of that best practice in. Whether we like it or not, I'm sure AI is going to make its way into the conversation for OT because what, what these environments do is generate a lot of telemetry, a lot of great analytical data. So that can be consumed. How do you make, you know, so as we drive for greater efficiency and productivity, how do you utilize that data and really be able to close the, you know, have a closed loop system? Right now we receive the data and it's typically for kind of human level decision support, but that will, I think we'll start to see more automation extend into these environments in, um, you know, how decisions are made and implemented, right? So, you know, just funneling that down to security, we typically will stay away from any type of automation from a security context in these environments because that could produce risk, significant risk. But I think as it matures and as, as more, you know, these environments progress, we'll start to see more of that orchestration and automation take hold because they're very complex. They're very large environments. So, from a human capacity perspective, it's very difficult to always be on top of it, right? Yeah, almost like uh, you can expect a march towards a continuous integration kind of model, which we've seen work so well for software, which I think we're starting to see in information security. And yeah, OT looks like it's going to be the last of the trickle down. For sure. And, we, we, and we're already seeing pieces of that. You know, it's a great, great analogy to probably, uh, you know, cater to the audience here. But you think about continuous integration. If you look at MES systems, um, which are coordinating what part is being built at what time, um, say in an automotive manufacturing context, 
and that they can have that down to I'm going to change the line to produce this part because I need it to this plant in 90 minutes. Well, that's continuous integration, right? And and so it's there, and I think we'll just see a much greater expansion of that uh, across many sectors, right? Wow, the future is going to get weird, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Thanks so much for being on the show, Dave. This was a really great conversation. It has me thinking about all sorts of things. Yeah, thanks, Chris. It was, it was great being here, and um, always happy to chat about OT security and anything we can do to increase awareness i think is is positive and and there's there's no shortage of work to be done thank you sir bye and that concludes episode 27 of the cybersecurity defenders podcast if you have any feedback or ideas for future topics please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io you can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you on the next episode.